Police in Philadelphia are looking for a motive in a series of shootings that left four people dead and two children hurt. The gunman is in custody. It's Tuesday, July 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, the latest on the Israeli military operation in the West Bank that's killed at least 10 Palestinians. Also this hour. I became an American because I plan to live here my whole life. And as an American, I hope to find happiness. We hear from some of the new Americans who became citizens yesterday at a ceremony in Boston and the legal debate in Colorado after voters passed Proposition 122, which lets people grow and use plants with psychedelic substances. 122 gave us the opportunity to share the healing power of mushrooms. Showers and storms today, but it should be dry for the fireworks, a high near 80. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Ukrainian prosecutor general and other authorities who are pushing to try Russian leaders for the war in Ukraine have opened a center to collect and coordinate evidence. Terry Schultz reports 20 prosecutors, including one from the United States, started work in The Hague on Monday. The new International Center for the Prosecution of the Crime of Aggression is considered a stepping stone to an eventual tribunal for Russians involved in planning and initiating the war on Ukraine. The center will bring together experts and evidence from the seven countries, including Ukraine, which make up a joint investigative team. The European Union, the U.S., and the International Criminal Court are also backers. The ICC cannot currently prosecute the crime of aggression, as Ukraine's Prosecutor General Andriy Kostin pointed out. We all know that crime of aggression is a leadership crime and is a remaining weak spot in the international criminal justice architecture. The EU Judicial Cooperation Agency Eurojust will host the center. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz. President Biden will meet with the Prime Minister of Sweden at the White House tomorrow. NPR's Deepa Shivaram reports the visit comes ahead of the upcoming NATO summit, an alliance that Sweden has been trying to join since Russia invaded Ukraine. The White House says the meeting between Biden and Swedish Prime Minister Ulf Kristersson will reaffirm America's view that Sweden should join NATO as soon as possible. Since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Finland and Sweden have both moved to join NATO, but only Finland's application has been ratified so far. The holdup on confirming Sweden's membership is due to opposition from Turkey. The White House says during their meeting, Biden and Kristersson will also discuss relations with China, climate change and new technologies. Deepa Shivaram, NPR News. Police in Baltimore are still searching for the suspects who opened fire at a block party on Sunday that left two people dead and 28 others injured. Investigators believe at least two people were involved in the shooting. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott says police are asking members of the public for tips, including information about a potential suspect whose image was posted on social media pulling out a weapon from a backpack. There were grown adults filming young people with guns who said nothing, who did nothing, who didn't say to the police, hey, I know this teenager's out here at this event with a gun, and we have to have a sense of responsibility to our own community as well. Authorities are also investigating a shooting in Philadelphia last night that left five people dead and two children wounded. Police are still trying to determine a motive behind the attack. The shootings in Philadelphia and Baltimore are the latest incidents of gun violence in the U.S. This is NPR News. 
I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. Tonight's big concert and fireworks display on the Esplanade in Boston is still scheduled, despite all the rain we'll get today. The Pops concert begins at 8, with fireworks scheduled for 10.30 tonight. Because of the event, most of Starrow Drive near the Hatch Shell will be closed all day today. To get people downtown, the T will run subways on a weekday schedule this afternoon, and no fares will be collected anywhere on the MBTA after 9.30. Today's cruise of the USS Constitution in Boston Harbor is still scheduled, but Public Affairs Officer Grant Grady says Old Ironsides will leave Charlestown at about 10 this morning and head to Castle Island. Around 11.30 approximately will be our 21-gun salute, and we will have a return salute, uh, return 21-gun salute from the Massachusetts National Guard. Um, And then we will do the turnaround, and then we'll head back to the Charlestown Navy Yard. There will be a 17-gun salute in Charlestown. State officials estimate more than 100,000 newly eligible eligible residents will apply for driver's licenses this year. Yesterday, the registry began issuing licenses regardless of immigration status. Jay Delisio is the assistant registrar of RMV service centers across the state. He says the registry will reassure applicants without legal immigration status that their information will be protected. We went through the training and everyone's really well versed in understanding that uh, we're not sharing this uh, this information. So um, when people come here, there's a trust and that trust is really important with us, with all of our customers, especially this new population. RMV officials tell the Boston Globe they've increased staffing and hours to accommodate the expected influx of licensed applicants. A new online dashboard is tracking Massachusetts's rollout of electric vehicles. The tool, launched by the Department of Transportation, compiles data on EVs registered in the state. So far, the state has nearly 69,000 zero-emissions vehicles registered. The state says it needs at least 200,000 on the road by 2025 to reach its goal of net-zero emissions. Public libraries across Massachusetts loan out a lot more than books and DVDs. Nancy Cohn reports on one Western Mass library that's letting people borrow some big things. In Sunderland, the public library is a short walk to the Connecticut River. Now people with a CW Mars library card can sign out a single or tandem kayak for up to three days, along with paddles and life vests, as long as they launch in Sunderland and sign a liability form. Director Catherine Umstadt says the idea is to expand what it means for a library to give people access to information. But information also includes the ability to, to try new things and to experience things that you may not be able to afford otherwise. The Pittsfield Library loans out a sewing machine, a drill, a metal detector, and a pickleball set. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nancy Cohen. On the tee this morning, Orange Line service is suspended between North Station and Back Bay. That's because of flooding at the Haymarket Station. The tee is telling riders to use the green line to get around the closure. It's 7.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick.
The Red Sox are back in action today. They'll host the Texas Rangers this afternoon. The Celtics signed a two-year deal with guard Delano Banton. He played the last two years with Toronto and went to high school in Western Mass. Showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today. Parts of Central Mass and the Merrimack Valley are under a flood watch. We'll have a high near 80. Some lingering rain overnight, but it should be dry enough in a lot of places to get off the fireworks. Temperatures will be in the 60s, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-80s. Right now it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. Capital One, what's in your wallet? Details at CapitalOne.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. In a few minutes, suggestions from NPR Music for your 4th of July playlist. But first... Residents of a refugee camp are spending this week in the midst of a military operation. Israel sent troops and drones into the camp at Jenin in the occupied West Bank. For decades, Jenin's been home to Palestinians displaced from Israel during its war of independence. Israel says the camp is also a base for militants, which is why Israeli troops opened fire in an operation that has so far left at least 10 Palestinians dead. You see? You can hear, I think, yes? NPR's Daniel Estrin recorded that call and joins us now from Tel Aviv. Daniel, that was a chilling tape there that we heard. Who are you speaking to there? That's a nurse in the Janine government hospital. He gave me his first name, Nauras, and he says that everyone in the hospital has been hearing a lot of that lately, Israeli army shooting, because the hospital is close to the camp where uh, troops are operating. I spoke to the hospital director who says uh, medical teams have not gone home for about 36 hours straight. They're treating people of all ages, mostly with tear gas inhalation wounds, but uh, a lot of those with critical injuries are Mostly young men, 15 to 25 years old, he said. Uh, They have come in with head, neck, chest wounds from bullets and also from Israel's drone airstrikes. And Israel has also destroyed many roads in the area. This is what the hospital director told me, Dr. Wissam Bakr. One road is open, but the difficulty in entrance to the camp for the ambulances because the roads all destroyed. Now, the Israeli army does acknowledge that only one road is is usable now for ambulances. Uh, The army says it destroyed many roads because they had intelligence that uh, the roads were booby-trapped. But uh, we are hearing that medics are actually walking by foot into the camp to help. Wow. Uh, Besides the hospital, what about life inside the Janine refugee camp? Because about 10 to 15,000 people live there, right? Yeah, and the estimates are even more than that. I mean, we are hearing from the UN that up to 6,000 Palestinians fled the camp, which uh, could be about a quarter of the camp's population. Um, We are hearing about hotels uh, receiving people fleeing, even a nearby church opening its doors. Uh, The army operation has left a lot of infrastructure damaged. Most of the camp does not have water or electricity. um, And so residents were describing just really unbearable heat, no AC at home, no water to flush toilets. Now, um, the Palestinian Authority is angry at the U.S. uh, because they're saying that the U.S. is not trying to stop Israel's incursion. The State Department put out a statement calling for civilian lives to be protected, but uh, basically saying the U.S. supports Israel protecting its people against terrorist groups. And Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu even attended the U.S. Embassy's Fourth of July party and on stage praised the operation. That's a stark contrast between him at a Fourth of July party and what's happening at this refugee camp. What's Israel's endgame here? 
Well, the army told me that the troops may need about one to three more days to go after explosive factories. Um, and they do think that many militants fled the camp, which means that if they are still at large, they may carry out reprisal attacks after all this is over. That could draw more calls from far-right Israeli officials to hit back even harder. This has been already a very violent year. At least 130 Palestinians have been killed, about 24 people killed on the Israeli side. And you know what? Uh, many Israeli military experts are looking at this and saying this operation cannot solve the deeper problems. West Bank settler violence against Palestinians, young Palestinians turning increasingly to weapons, no horizon for a better life for Palestinians under occupation. That's NPR's Daniel Estrin in Tel Aviv. Daniel, thanks for your reporting. You're welcome. Here is some of the news of this Independence Day. Last night in Philadelphia, where the founders signed the Declaration of Independence, a gunman wearing a bulletproof vest killed four people. He also wounded four people, including two children, before police subdued him, and we don't really know why he did this. In Baltimore, Maryland, gunfire at a block party early Sunday killed two young people and injured dozens of others. Police suspect more than one gunman there. Baltimore Sun columnist Dan Rodericks wrote that the Baltimore shooting got him thinking about freedom in this country, and he's on the line. Good morning, sir. Good morning, Steve. How do mass shootings relate to freedom? Well, I, I was thinking about this, uh, course, after this event in Baltimore Sunday and with the 4th of July approaching, thinking, you know, maybe we don't think about this enough or we only think about it when, when these disasters happen. But when you ro roam around America, when you go on with your lives, do you actually, are, are, is your freedom actually being impinged by the number of guns in our society? by the not knowing who's carrying guns. And would, you you explain really how your free? would you explain how your freedom would be impinged by knowing there's a lot of guns out there? Well, I mean, I'm, if you don't think about it, I guess you're okay. But if you think about uh, the number of mass shootings that have occurred, the daily violence that goes on, the number of guns in America, uh, maybe you don't travel as far as you do. Maybe you don't go to certain places. I, I went to a a concert with my adult children and for the first time remembering to look to see where the exits were, you know, in case something were to happen that followed one of the mass shootings. And I can't even remember which one it was, Steve, because there have been so many. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I don't know if people want to think about this on the 4th of July because there's a lot of Americans, I think, are in denial about how serious a problem this is. Uh, but, you know, it, it does affect how you think when you go out into the world. Uh, young parents worried about their kids in school, whether there's going to be a, a mass shooting, uh, going to a prayer service. I mean, 10, 20 years ago, you wouldn't have thought about the danger in doing that. And now I, I think Americans on the 4th of July ought to think about this because it's an increasingly uh, serious public health problem. I don't, I don't think that what you're saying is, is very far offline. I mean, I hear people making remarks like this, mothers worried about their children as they go out and thinking about what might happen to them. I think you're telling me that while gun violence directly affects thousands of people who are killed by it, it indirectly affects the lives of millions, even hundreds of millions of us. Certainly. I mean, I'm in, I'm in Baltimore. This is a city that's been struggling for years to get on track again, you know, to grow population. Uh, to see uh, new people move into the city. Uh, there's so much, on so many fronts, we were looking to see Baltimore improve, and this has been going on for years. I, I've been writing about this for years. Mm -hmm. And even that, 
the, the daily gun violence that goes on in this city, not to mention this mass shooting that occurred the other night, um, diminishes your, your civic pride or your, your, your optimism about what the city can achieve, even if you're not affected by it, even if you don't live in one of those neighborhoods where shooting is likely to occur. And I say that knowing full well that a shooting is likely to occur almost anywhere now. I don't, yeah. I don't, you know, I don't confine my concern about this to what goes on in inner city Baltimore. It can, yeah. it can happen anywhere. You know, somebody listening to this is probably thinking, well, I don't approve of gun violence, but I feel that guns protect my freedom. What would you say to someone like that? Yeah, I would say uh, look to see where you live. Uh, look at the uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and what they say about uh, the number of guns available and whether it provides safety. There is a, there is a correlation between the number of guns and the lack of safety, uh, the, the danger that, that occurs in states where there are permissive gun laws and more guns. So, I know you may think it makes you safer. Uh, I, the statistics don't support that. But, you know, we're living in an age when uh, we're so polarized, uh, people don't want to hear facts about it. And people are pessimistic, I think, Steve. I'm sorry to say, but you, I think you know this. People are pessimistic about what can be done about the gun problem in America. And it's an increasing, increasing problem. 48,000 yeah. Americans killed by guns, suicide or homicide in 2021, I think the last time we had a good measurement. And Don, the, Dan Rodericks, you, you know, that. we're on a pace with mass shootings this year. That's just, just terrible. Dan Rodericks is a columnist with the Baltimore Sun. Thanks for your insights. Thank you, Steve. A 4th of July barbecue just isn't complete without good music. If you're True. looking for some last-minute inspiration for your playlist, NPR music critic Stephen Thompson has you covered. And his first suggestion will put the Barbie in your barbecue. In honor of the forthcoming Greta Gerwig-directed Barbie movie. You can play music from the new Barbie movie soundtrack, like the song Dance the Night by Dua Lipa. Watch me Or you can go with Aqua's classic version of Barbie Girl. Steven says he has been to an actual Barbie queue. Everybody dressed as Barbie or Ken. There were pink drinks with glitter. And if that's not your jam, then how could it not be? But if it's not, don't worry, because Steven has other suggestions like a BBQ. Celebrate American excellence by playing the music of the great American original Beyonce. You can take the complete collected works of Beyonce, play them in any order you want because this is America. Steven, a longtime Washington, D.C. resident, has yet another idea for your cookout. When I think of the sounds of a summer in D.C., I think about go-go music. You know, funk with certain kind of rhythms attached to it that feel swampy, but in the good way. I think I'm sprung now. I've seen a dude uptown who makes me want to settle down and have his fun. Pull out your Rare Essence. Pull out your Chuck Brown records. I was driving in my car one day. Okay, so Rob, what would you put on your July 4th playlist? I think I'm with Steven. I, I think I'd go, I'm, I'm from Minnesota, and I would love to honor the, one of the best Minnesota musicians, Prince. Wow, there you go. Okay, that would work. That would work. I'm thinking a little more along the lines of 
of Springsteen, you know, kind of dark and patriotic, but I know that my kids would be picking Hamilton because they know the lyrics. <laughs> of course. New York City, 1776. Pardon me, are you Aaron Burr, sir? That depends. Who's asking? Oh, sure. Sir, I'm Alexander Hamilton. I'm at your service, sir. I have been looking for you. I'm getting nervous. Sir, I heard your name at Princeton. I was seeking an accelerated course of study. Put your hand on your heart. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 20 minutes on Morning Edition, we head across the pond for a preview of this year's Wimbledon tennis tournament. It's 720. As Kabul fell to the Taliban in 2021, a teenager was separated from his family at the airport and wound up on a plane without them. It's a dark day for me because I lost my old family. He's been here in the U.S. ever since, alone. Plus, descendants of Frederick Douglass read from one of his speeches, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It's going to be wet today, but we should be able to get in those fireworks. WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has our forecast. Areas of showers, downpours, embedded thunder today scattered in nature will last through the late afternoon. Have a backup plan to seek shelter indoors should you need to. An isolated strong to severe storm can't be ruled out. Damaging wind gusts, localized flooding, and heavy downpours, lightning, the primary concerns. Highs will be 75 to 80. The action really dwindles between 6 to 8 p.m., so fireworks should be good to go, including at the Esplanade. Temperature right around 70 by then with a light wind. Tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, brighter. Warmer, quieter overall with a hit-or-miss thunderstorm, highs in the mid to upper 80s. It's 69 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the latest season of Father Brown, season 10. This and more mysteries following unofficial detectives, including Miss Marple and Jonathan Creek, streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Climate change is bringing us longer and more severe wildfire seasons, especially in the western U.S. A major tool in the fight against wildfires is a neon pink fire retardant dropped from planes. It's called FOSCHEC. Many fire crews insist it's indispensable, but critics say it's contaminating waterways and making it harder to fight future fires. Los Angeles Times reporter Haley Smith is covering this debate and joins us now. Good morning, Haley. Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. You describe Foscheck as a neon pink goo, a sticky slurry of ammonium phosphate that coats vegetation to deprive advancing flames of oxygen and that authorities swear by it. Help us understand how FOSCHEC works. Fire crews use it, usually ahead of a fire, to sort of slow the flames, and it allows crews time to move in and lay the containment lines and do what they need to do to stop the fire. But as you mentioned, some uh, environmental groups and other critics have raised concerns about what all that sticky pink sludge is doing to the plants and the other things that it's touching. Well, what is it doing to the environment? Why are people worried about it? 
So there are a number of questions that have been raised about it, and there's also been some studies that have shown that it is harmful to fish and aquatic life, like endangered Chinook salmon when it gets into waterways. There's concern about its long-term effects on soils and insects and microbiology. And interestingly, it can also act as a fertilizer that actually encourages plants to grow, hmm. which could potentially create more fuel for fires in the next year. So... With this debate happening about FOSTEC, do the benefits of this fire retardant outweigh the risks? I think it really depends on who you ask. If you're speaking to someone whose home or whose loved ones are in the path of a wildfire, they'd probably want you to use every tool at your disposal. But what these critics are saying is, hey, we're really dropping a lot of this stuff and it lasts for a really long time and it gets into waterways and it's sticky. So maybe it's worthwhile to stop and just consider its potential ecological effects or downsides before we dump it all over everything. And what does the manufacturer of Foschek say? I mean, you know, obviously this fire retardant is used for a reason. I would imagine it's been checked by environmental groups. Uh, I'm just curious to know what they're saying about this debate. Sure. I mean, they're understandably focused on its firefighting benefits. And in fact, CAL FIRE, which is our uh, state agency here in California, has dropped more fire retardant than water over fires in the last several years. Hmm. Um, where I think it gets a little fuzzier is that the company is now pushing this new product, which is a roadside spray. And so unlike the spray that gets dropped from airplanes, they're actually proposing spraying this on vegetation along roadsides ahead of fire season. And it's meant to last for several months until the first big rainfall. And they're saying that it allows them to be more precise with where they put it and that it'll help prevent ignitions and stop fires from spreading. But again, that's raised some questions from the environmental groups. Now, you're talking to folks who live in these areas where these fire retardants are used. Uh, what are they saying about it? I mean, I've heard from people on both sides of this. In San Diego, where officials are testing the roadside spray, one resident was really concerned that when it rains, it will run off into waterways and possibly end up in the ocean. But on the flip side, the mayor of Paradise, California, which had our deadliest ever wildfire back in 2018, the campfire, said banning retardant would put lives and homes at risk. So people have strong opinions about it on both sides. So I understand there's a lawsuit uh, also happening right now. A group known as the Forest Service Employees for Environmental Ethics is suing the U.S. Forest Service over its use Mm -hmm. of FOSCheck. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so this group sued the Forest Service on the basis that its aerial drops are violating the Clean Water Act, which is the federal law that prohibits the discharge of pollutants into U.S. waters without a permit. And the judge in this case actually agreed with them and said, yes, dropping this spray from airplanes is violating the Clean Water Act. However, he also said banning the use of the material could conceivably result in greater harm from wildfires. So he ruled that the Forest Service can keep dropping the retardant while it works on getting a permit from the EPA. That's LA Times reporter Haley Smith. Thanks, Haley. Sure. Thanks for having me. The rate of pregnancy-related deaths is going up in the United States. For some groups, it's more than doubled in recent decades. And a new study confirms the trends we've been reporting on NPR for some time. NPR's Ping Huang has details. The study looks at state-by-state data from 2009 to 2019. It's published in the medical journal JAMA. 
Co-author Dr. Allison Bryant is an obstetrician at Mass General Hospital in Boston. She says maternal death rates in the U.S. just keep getting worse. And that is exacerbated in populations that have been sort of historically underserved or for whom structural racism affects them greatly. Maternal death rates have consistently been highest among Black women, and those high rates have doubled in the past 20 years. For American Indian and Alaskan Native people, the rates have tripled. Dr. Gregory Roth at the University of Washington also co-authored the paper. He says efforts to stop pregnancy deaths have not only stalled in areas like the South, where rates have typically been high. We're showing that they are worsening in places that are often thought of as having better health. Such as New York and New Jersey for Black and Latina mothers, higher death rates in Idaho and New Hampshire for Native Americans, and among Asians in Wyoming and Montana. Dr. Catherine Spong at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center says pregnancy-related deaths can be caused by different things. The biggest morbid conditions are things such as cardiovascular disease, severe preeclampsia, maternal cardiac disease, hemorrhage. Continuing heart problems and mental health conditions can also contribute to the death of a new mother. The researchers say doctors would have a better chance of dealing with these health conditions if more women had access to health care after their babies were born. For those who get their health care through Medicaid, medical coverage lasts at least two months after the birth of a child. Since 2021, states have had the option to extend that coverage for a year. So far, 36 states in Washington, D.C. have done so. Ping Huang, NPR News. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, could recent Supreme Court rulings become voting issues? Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or the radio. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.50 on WBUR's Morning Edition. We hear from some of the new U.S. citizens who took the Oath of Allegiance in Boston yesterday. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. The Israeli military is continuing an operation in the occupied West Bank. Hundreds of ground troops are being supported by airstrikes as the Israeli army pursues Palestinian militants and weapons. NPR's Daniel Estrin says at least 10 Palestinians have been killed and many more have been wounded, including dozens at a refugee camp in Jenin. Medical teams have not gone home for about 36 hours straight. They're treating people of all ages, mostly with tear gas inhalation wounds, but uh, a lot of those with critical injuries are mostly young men, 15 to 25 years old, he said. Uh, They have come in with head, neck, chest wounds from bullets and also from Israel's drone airstrikes. The State Department is calling on Israel to protect civilians. Authorities in Pennsylvania now say five people were killed in last night's shooting in a Philadelphia neighborhood. Two children were wounded. Police say a gunman wearing a bulletproof vest fired at people over several blocks. He was armed with a rifle and a handgun. Daniel Outlaw is the city's police commissioner. She says officers apprehended the suspect after chasing him on foot. 
Once he was cornered in the alley, uh, the officers gave him commands to show, their, show his hands and they were able to uh, get him into custody without further incident. A motive is under investigation. This is NPR News from Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston Pops concert and fireworks on the Esplanade tonight will go on, rain or shine. WBUR's Lainey Ruxell has a preview. Special guests at tonight's concert include 90s R&B group En Vogue and a handful of Broadway performers. The Boston Pops' Keith Lockhart is in his 28th year of conducting the concert. Getting to come together from a lot of different directions and celebrate commonalities and celebrate the aspirations we have for America, even if sometimes it falls short of those aspirations, I think uh, is a really worthy goal. The show begins at 8 p.m. and is free and open to the public. You can also watch from home on Channel 7. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtell. There will be no fireworks tonight in Amesbury. The city's annual display has been postponed until Labor Day to protect the nesting habitat of the bobolink. The migratory bird nests in grasslands normally mowed before the fireworks are set off. This year, the land was not cleared before hatchlings arrived. Jeff Collins is a conservation scientist with the Mass Audubon Society. And if mowing occurs at that point, then the birds are not able to complete their cycle. The nest can be destroyed, fledglings can be killed, and um, all of the birds' effort that has gone into raise their young uh, is wasted for that year. The bobolink flies from South America each year to nest in North American grasslands. The number of birds is declining in part due to loss of habitat. A Stoughton woman has been found safe a week after she was reported missing. Police believe the 31-year-old was trapped in a swampy area of Borderland State Park in Easton for at least three days. Hikers heard her calls for help, and she was rescued yesterday. In sports, the Red Sox will host the Texas Rangers this afternoon at Fenway. Rain and thunderstorms likely throughout the day today in parts of Central Mass and the Merrimack Valley are under a flood watch. It'll be in the upper 70s. It should dry up in many areas tonight in time for the fireworks. It'll be in the 60s. Tomorrow, mid-80s and mostly sunny. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR at 733. Support for NPR comes from this station and from your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting. Your part-time controller helps nonprofit organizations with their accounting needs, remotely or in person. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system. Designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Colorado is once again at the forefront of a new drug industry. After being among the first states to legalize marijuana, it will soon join Oregon in allowing professionals to offer psychedelic mushroom trips starting in 2025. But as Colorado Public Radio's Andrew Kenny reports, some people don't want to wait. In an apartment near downtown Denver, Ashley Ryan runs a small wooden baton around the edge of a Tibetan singing bowl and strikes it once, twice, before the tone she wants rings out. 
And so singing bowls might be incorporated in a healing journey, meditation, mindfulness. Ryan calls herself a psychedelic guide. She accompanies people as they trip on psilocybin mushrooms. The singing bowl helps her clients relax, even when space-time itself starts to feel unreliable. There is space to sit outside, um, as well as just kind of go for a walk. Whatever people need to heal is what I offer them. She's a former teacher who says she found happiness through her own careful use of mushrooms. Now she's guided dozens of trips for fees ranging into the hundreds of dollars. Sometimes it's just a friend calling and telling me, hey, I want to take these mushrooms. Can you come over and hang out with me and watch me and make sure that I'm safe? Colorado's new psychedelic sector has really sprung up since last November when voters approved Proposition 122. It allows Coloradans to grow and use plants and fungi containing psychedelic substances like psilocybin, DMT, and mescaline. 122 gave us the opportunity to use our voice and to share the healing power of mushrooms with others. Share is the key word. The new law doesn't allow anyone to sell psychedelics, so no mushroom dispensaries, but people like Ashley Ryan can give away the drug and charge for related services like trip guiding. I feel like it's growing every day. I get more and more DMs from people, emails, uh, messages from friends who I would never think would want to try mushrooms. Other entrepreneurs are pairing psilocybin with physical therapy or selling microdose classes. This is all happening with no licenses, no testing, no regulation. State Senate President Steve Fenberg worries it could invite a crackdown from the federal government. The sort of unspoken agreement since marijuana legalization is as long as you were regulating it in a mature and professional manner to avoid worst case situations, the federal government generally is going to assume that you are doing your part and not allowing this to get out of control. Colorado is working on rules for a regulated psychedelic industry. By 2025, the state's expected to allow licensed healing centers to offer guided mushroom trips. In the meantime, Fenberg helped pass a new law to slow the growth of the gray market. It was important to us that we didn't totally cut off personal use and sharing, but we also wanted to make sure that we had fidelity to the, the fact that Proposition 122 asked the state to regulate these services. Ashley Ryan can still charge for her time while giving away drugs, but the new law does limit her ability to market the business. She's worried she'll have to scrub her website and go silent. The way the law is currently written with the new regulations for community healing, I see it as going underground again. Travis Tyler Fluck also worries about overregulation. He teaches people how to microdose and gives them psilocybin to do so. The most intelligent thing that, that Colorado can do is foster a environment of like motivating people to be as visible as possible with what they're doing. Because most of this work is no stranger to the underground. And that's where a lot of harms are done. Licensed clinical psychologist Jana Baldwin-Lomax thinks psilocybin holds real promise for her clients, including people facing terminal cancers. But she urges caution. A psychedelic experience can turn from enlightening to terrifying. My worst case scenario is that 
you know, encouraging a patient to do this and then them being further traumatized by being in a vulnerable position or with someone that didn't have the training to be able to handle their experience in a, in a healing way. Baldwin Lomax is currently training in psychedelic assisted therapy and may eventually apply for one of Colorado's formal psilocybin licenses. A psychedelic advisory board is working with state regulators on rules for those, which are expected to be out in the next year or so. For NPR News, I'm Andrew Kenny. The world's best tennis players are on the grass at Wimbledon. The tournament got off to an awkward start yesterday as fans waited in line for hours to get in. There are extra security measures in place because of concerns about environmental protesters. And this all happened in the rain. Our friend John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated is covering Wimbledon. Hey there, John. Hi, Steve. How are you? I'm okay. You've been able to get in? Barely. It's, uh, it's been an eventful first day, but uh, we suspect things will, will, will calm down. First day jitters. Okay, well, let's focus on the courts. Who are you watching? Uh, we were watching Novak Djokovic, who is going for his 24th major, which would set the record for men and tie him all-time with Margaret Court. Uh, he's the defending, the DD defending champion. He's going for his eighth title here. Um, he's, I mean, I, I liken this, it's like the, the Republican field. I mean, you, you, have one, uh, you have one heavy favorite and then a lot of uh, Connor Roy's polling in single digits. He's, uh, he, he ought to win. I like your formulation of adding extra Ds to defending champion if you're defending more than one time. Is there anybody in that field of other other contenders for the nomination, so to speak, to use your analogy, anybody who you think might challenge him even if they're not favored to do so? I sort of candidate A would be Carlos Alcaraz, who is this uh this this young phenom from Spain who's a terrific player, but um you're not quite sure uh, if, if he's ready to take down Djokovic on grass. Andy Murray has won this event twice. He also has a, a metal hip. He's, it's funny, he's born within, within a week or so of Djokovic. I mean, they're, they're both 36 years old, but they look like two players almost from two different generations. And, you know, wow. I mean, a, a lot can happen. It's a fluky surface. There's seven rounds. They're, you know, we, we started this tournament with, with 127 other candidates, but... It would really be a, a shocking upset if someone other than, than Djokovic didn't win the title. I'll try not to dwell too long in the idea that you're 36 and you've got a metal hip and you're an old man and, and everything <laughs> exactly. else. But anyway, that's sports, I suppose. What about on the women's side? Uh, the, the women's side is, is, is wider open. It's, it's interesting. Iga Svantec has really established herself, this young player from Poland, as, as this dominant force. She's already won four majors but has never won Wimbledon. So... Um, the defending champion is, is a Kazakh player, Elena Rabakina. And remember, last year the Russian players and players from Belarus were not able to attend. They were they were banned from playing because of uh, oh, the yeah. conflict. So that's that's a bit of a wrinkle. The field this year looks very different than it did last year. John, can you just tell me one other thing? Granting all the problems and the difficulties of the gate and everything else, what does it feel like to be at Wimbledon to be looking down on that grass? It, it's really, I mean, I say, n- nobody comes here for the first time and walks away and says, meh, didn't live up to the hype. I mean, it really is an extraordinary event. And I think one thing they do so well is, you know, it's, it's this, this old-time event. There's this great reverence for history. But there also are these really modern and, and even populist touches. I mean, 
I don't know how we feel about this, but there there is AI doing some of the highlights. There are new you know, there, there are new player decks and these sort of architectural twists. They really thread this needle between keeping this place modern and keeping it fan friendly and trying to get a younger audience, but also leaning into the history. It, it really is an extraordinary place. John Wertheim of Sports Illustrated. It's always a pleasure. Thank you, sir. Likewise. Thanks, Steve. And you hear him on NPR News. You're with WBUR. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, two award-winning historians discuss the history of the Declaration of Independence and its promise that all men are created equal. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with a high near 76. Tonight, just a slight chance of rain, so fireworks will probably still happen in many places in the 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 85. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Simone Lee at the ICA. See why Lee was named one of Time's Top 100, now on view, icaboston.org. And Sunbug Solar, helping to grow renewable energy in Massachusetts since 2009. To learn about solar energy employment opportunities, visit sunbugsolar.com. Middleborough-based Christmas Tree Shops plans to liquidate all its stores. The move comes after the company defaulted on its bankruptcy loan. The chain filed for bankruptcy two months ago in hopes of restructuring its finances. Christmas Tree Shops could still avoid liquidation if it finds a buyer for the company. It's going to take more time for passenger levels at Logan Airport to reach pre-pandemic levels. 39 million people traveled through Logan over the last year. Airport officials tell the Boston Globe that's still nearly 7 percent lower than in 2019. It's 745. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt. Through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is WB Wars Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Our purpose of evasion. So help me God. Well, let me be the first. That's the sound of more than 250 brand new U.S. citizens taking the oath of allegiance yesterday at Faneuil Hall in Boston. They come from 59 different countries. WBUR Steve Brown put together this audio postcard featuring some of the newly minted citizens. My name is Angie Tapiero Fandino. I'm originally from Colombia. I became an American because I plan to live here my whole life. And as an American, I hope to find happiness. My name is Arman Avesta. I'm originally from Iran. I became an American because it's day and life difference between when you don't have freedom of speech and when you do. And you have to actually hold that very close to your heart because I didn't have that and now I do. As an American, I hope to live a happy life and also make others um, happier. My name is Luis Rubio from El Salvador. I just became a US citizen because I want 
a better future for my daughter because she's going to become a U.S. citizen as well. And becoming an American, I hope to get a lot of things, especially what I want is to have a good job, make some money, and have a happy life here in the U.S. My name is Laura Ferreira. I'm from Portugal. Uh, I became an American uh, citizen because I would like to be vote on a federal. Uh, I would like to vote on a federal election, and I, I don't want. I want to be free to travel and everything. As an American, I hope to grow on this country, have a better future for for my kids and for my family, and we take from there. My name is Yusuf Yusuf, and I'm originally from Somalia, which is East African. Um, I became American because, you know, chasing my dreams, you know, pursuit of happiness. As an American, I hope to prosper, you know, have kids here, and just, you know, enjoy the benefits of being American. My name is Lucas Guan. I'm originally from Guangzhou, China. I'm currently a second-year student at MIT, uh, studying electrical engineering, and I became an American because for better education. And as an American, I hope to pursue a PhD. My name is Marixa Flores. I am originally from Peru. I became an American because I love this country. I feel uh, very good here. I have my job. I have my life. As American, I hope to be here safe with my family and try to be happy, no? My name is Anthony Bochel. I'm originally from the Republic of Ireland. I became an American citizen because I want to be part of this great nation. Uh, as an American, I hope to continue the great life I live and watch my kids grow older and yeah, I'm just happy to be here. Those are just a few of the 253 brand new U.S. citizens who took part in a naturalization ceremony at Boston Spaniel Hall yesterday. The piece was produced by WBUR Steve Brown. At 820, we look at some of the methods college and universities may use to maintain diversity in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision to strike down race-conscious admissions. It's 7.50. Bruno Lozano is a Democrat, former mayor of Del Rio, Texas, and a critic of President Biden's federal immigration policy. I am asking to please stop. Please make another plan for this federal issue. If you're going to allow these individuals into our community, I respectfully ask that you provide the means and the supplies necessary to accommodate them. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Bruno Lozano joins us on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Police are looking for a motive after a shooter in Philadelphia killed four people and injured two children. 
At least 10 Palestinians have been killed and dozens injured in an Israeli military raid in the West Bank. And in Massachusetts, by this time tomorrow, the Sumner Tunnel will be closed, leaving drivers to find a new way from East Boston to downtown. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP Manufacturing Services for Biologics, BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. There's a good chance of rain and storms all day today. We'll have temperatures in the upper 70s. Tonight it dips into the 60s and should be dry enough in many areas for the fireworks. Tomorrow, mid-80s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Texas's abortion ban provides no exceptions for when a fetus is diagnosed with a fatal condition. That leaves patients who receive this devastating news with two options, carry the pregnancy until birth or travel out of state for an abortion. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffins reported earlier this year on two women who walked those very different paths. Now she has an update on each of them. When Lauren Miller of Dallas contacted NPR last fall, she was 13 weeks along with a wanted twin pregnancy, and she had just found out that one of the fetuses had a genetic condition called trisomy 18. Her doctor said it was incompatible with life and that the longer the twin continued to grow, the more she and the other twin were in danger. Lauren Miller and her husband, Jason, ended up traveling to Colorado to abort the twin with trisomy 18. She told NPR what it felt like to pack for that trip. It kind of like felt like this secret mission, like we've got to escape kind of feeling. I'm from Texas. I'm an eighth generation Texan. And to be feeling like I need to escape the state was just a bizarre sensation. One week after that story aired, Miller stood near the state capitol building for a press conference as a plaintiff in a lawsuit challenging Texas's abortion laws. A few weeks after that, she gave birth to the healthy twin, a baby boy they named Henry. I called her recently and got to see him. He's coming up on three months now, which is fine. You know, he's starting to do more stuff. You might hear the occasional coo as we're talking. He's very chatty. She says it was emotional when she gave birth back in March. I don't know that I'd fully registered until Henry was born how worried I had been. The first words I said to him were, you made it. Despite the laws in Texas, Henry made it. When Miller delivered her healthy baby Henry, she also delivered Henry's twin who died, who they named Thomas. He stopped growing after the selective reduction procedure. She and Jason brought an infant-sized urn in their bag to the hospital. Miller says it's strange to be so public now about something that's so intimate. But she points out she has company. New plaintiffs recently joined the lawsuit, bringing the number of women suing to 15. It's the world's worst club. But I hope that this is showing people how many people are impacted by these bans. One of the new plaintiffs is Samantha Cassiano. She also received a fatal fetal diagnosis. Cassiano's fetus had anencephaly, meaning part of its skull and brain did not form. But unlike Lauren Miller, Cassiano's family did not have the money or flexibility to travel out of state. She and her husband, Louis, live in a mobile home outside of Houston where they're raising five children. In the end, the baby they named Halo was born weeks early and lived for just four hours. 
When I spoke to Cassiano recently, she explained Halo's funeral didn't go how she had hoped. She had wanted an open casket. I mean, it's the last time that I was going to be able to see my daughters. It would have been the first time that a lot of my family members was able to see her. They said that we couldn't have an open casket. She was heartbroken. After NPR first aired her story in April, hundreds of people were moved by her situation and donated around $50,000 to her. Cassiano was able to buy a car for herself, fix her husband's truck, and donate thousands back to a family that had lost their infant. She is now back at work full-time, trying to get into a normal rhythm, but she's still very upset that she had to carry the pregnancy for months, knowing that her daughter wouldn't survive. It was especially hard to feel Halo kick. If you're on life support, your family can take you off of life support, right? Well, I feel like it's the same thing, except for my daughter was in my womb. Like, I'm her life support. So I feel like I should have been able to release her into heaven sooner rather than later. And I wasn't given that right. She hasn't been able to bring herself to pick up Halo's death certificate. She says when she thinks about it all, she gets angry. She says it feels like she and Halo were sentenced to do prison time in continuing the pregnancy for months. And I felt like I got punished to a time, but why? Like, why did me and Halo get punished to a time? What did we do that was so bad? In a court filing earlier this month, Texas's attorney general's office argued that the patients in the lawsuit, including Lauren Miller and Samantha Cassiano, were not harmed directly by the state's abortion laws. Attorneys for the state say the plaintiffs were actually harmed by their fears and their doctor's decision-making. It also says that the harms Cassiano suffered, quote, stem from a lack of resources. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Okay, residents of Southern California who go to the beach on this holiday should pay attention because sea lions are behaving in a way that beachgoers may find aggressive. So we're currently seeing a massive influx of sick California sea lions and mostly common dolphins showing up on our beaches having seizures that are kind of unaware, dazed and confused. That's Alyssa Deming at the Pacific Marine Mammal Center in Laguna Beach. She says an intense algae bloom just off the coast is generating a harmful neurotoxin. Demoic acid can impact the receptor in your brain or even in your heart and causes it to be overexcited, essentially, which can result in seizures or damage to the heart. And this toxin has spread up the food chain. Sea lions and dolphins eat mostly sardines, anchovy, and hake which are concentrating this toxin. We think we're seeing these demoic acid blooms more frequently as well as lasting longer and potentially even producing a higher level of toxin that's resulting in worse clinical signs. So if you spot a sea lion in distress, Deming says, leave it be. Give them their space and call the professionals. Authorities are warning beachgoers to stay at least 50 feet away from all marine mammals for their own safety. Deming adds that while a bite from a sea lion will not transmit the toxin, it's still smart to see a doctor. If you get bit by a sea lion, you have to worry about two things. Number one, the trauma associated with that bite. And also there's a lot of bacteria both in their mouths and in the ocean water itself that can result in significant infections. Many creatures are affected by this problem. The California Department of Public Health is telling people to avoid eating some shellfish 
that is harvested for sport because of high toxin levels. But if you're clamoring for clams on this 4th of July, they say seafood sold commercially is fine. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Cloudy in upper 70s today. There's a good chance of showers and storms. Upper 60s and mostly cloudy tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies and mid-80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston and we're coming up on 8 o'clock. I'm here and now host Scott Tong, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. A gunman wearing a bulletproof vest opened fire on the streets of Philadelphia last night, killing four people and wounding two boys. It's Tuesday, July 4th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shinoy. Coming up, Russia says it has repelled a drone attack on a Moscow airport as Ukraine's counteroffensive continues. Also on this Independence Day, some cities are celebrating with drones instead of fireworks. I can have the American flag, I can have the Statue of Liberty in the sky, the Liberty Bell, those iconic images. Plus, we hear from Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart ahead of tonight's concert on the Esplanade. Getting to come together and celebrate the aspirations we have for America, even if sometimes it falls short of those aspirations, I think uh, is a really worthy goal. Near 80 with showers and storms today, it should dry up for the fireworks tonight. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Russia is blaming Ukraine for a series of drone attacks on Moscow today. NPR's Charles Main says no injuries were reported, but the drones did cause disruptions at a major airport. Russia's defense ministry says its air defenses shot down four drones and another crashed in the outskirts of the city after the drone signal was jammed. Yet air traffic was restricted at Moscow's Nukova airport for several hours, with incoming international flights diverted. Russia's foreign ministry spokeswoman Maria Zakharova accused Ukraine of deliberately targeting commercial air facilities in what she called a terrorist act against civilian targets. There was no immediate comment from Ukraine on the incident. Drone attacks inside Russia have become a common occurrence in recent months, including an attack on the Kremlin in May, after which President Vladimir Putin promised to beef up the city's air defenses. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. The leaders of India, China, and Russia are meeting today for a summit of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Sashmita Patak reports the gathering comes just weeks after the Indian Prime Minister met with President Biden and congressional leaders during a state visit to Washington. Pakistan and a handful of Central Asian countries are also part of the group, and Iran is its newest member. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization was established in 2001 to counter Western influence in Eurasia. India is hosting Tuesday's summit as it continues to balance ties between the West and Russia-China. 
Russia is India's long-time partner, but New Delhi and Washington are growing closer too. India's relationship with China has been tense, with fighting breaking out sporadically over their disputed border. For NPR News, I'm Sushmita Pathak in Delhi. NATO has announced that it's extending Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg's contract by another year. The alliance says it wants to stick with his leadership amid the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. Stoltenberg has been the leader of NATO since 2014. Authorities in Pennsylvania say five people were shot to death in Philadelphia when an armed man began firing at people in a neighborhood. Two children were wounded. As NPR's Marie Andrusovich reports, two people have been taken into custody as investigators determine a motive for the attack. The gunman opened fire over several blocks while on foot in the southwestern part of the city at around 8.30 p.m. local time. Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw says the suspect continued firing at police as they pursued him. This male was wearing a bulletproof vest with multiple magazines in the vest. He also had a scanner and an AR-style rifle and a handgun. Outlaw says the officers who apprehended the suspect showed courage and also restraint. Marie Andrusevich, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. The Boston Pops 4th of July concert and fireworks on the Esplanade will go on tonight, rain or shine. The music is set to begin around 8 with the fireworks going off at 10.30. Earlier in the day, the USS Constitution Museum in Charlestown will host a salute to service block party at the Navy Yard. The museum's chief experience officer, Sarah Watkins, says it's a great way to celebrate Independence Day. Everyone saying thank you, everyone doing their part to understand, appreciate, and give thanks is something that we should do every day, and certainly on the day where we're celebrating our freedoms and we're celebrating our independence. Old Ironsides will take a trip through Boston Harbor this morning with gun salutes planned for Castle Island and Charlestown. The tea will be fare-free after 9.30 tonight to help people get home from the fireworks. Subway lines will run on a weekday schedule beginning at 3 this afternoon. The commuter rail will be on a weekend schedule, but the last train will be a little later than normal. Buses are running on a Sunday schedule all day. The Old North Church is getting into the July 4th spirit today. The historic site will hold a slate of Independence Day-themed programming, including guided tours, a historical reenactment, and a scavenger hunt. The church's executive director, Nikki Stewart, says she's most excited about a costumed demonstration showing how people in colonial times dressed for the summer heat. The practice of dressing for the weather you know, in, in colonial times is really interesting. It's obviously something we still think about today, even though we have uh, a lot more options and a lot more technology. The church is also putting on a performance of an original play about the American Revolution. Doors open for that show at 5 p.m. New research from Mass General Brigham shows the number of maternal deaths in the U.S. has more than doubled in the last two decades. The research found that black and American Indian women were more likely to die from complications in the year after giving birth. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. Massachusetts performed better than other states, but the racial inequities were apparent here, too. There is no quality without equity. Dr. Allison Bryant is a maternal fetal medicine specialist and a co-author of the study. 
the United States has unacceptably high rates of maternal mortality, and they have been largely on the rise over this couple of decades. And they are not distributed equitably amongst populations. Bryant said structural racism and mistrust of the healthcare system contribute to inequities. The data show maternal death rates were beginning to plateau, but the pandemic reversed that progress. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. It's 8.07. WBUR supporters include Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quill Pure Z's gummies. Designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. A heads up for anyone riding the T this morning. Orange Line service is suspended between Back Bay and North Station because of flooding at Haymarket Station. No word on when regular service will resume. In sports, the Red Sox will try to extend their three-game winning streak. They'll host the Texas Rangers this afternoon at Fenway. Showers and thunderstorms throughout the day today. Parts of Central Mass and the Merrimack Valley are under a flood watch. We'll have a high near 80. Some lingering rain overnight, but it should be dry enough in a lot of places to get off the fireworks. Temperatures will be in the 60s, mostly sunny tomorrow and in the mid-80s. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Rob Schmitz. And I'm Steven Skip. On this Independence Day, we hear some words we have debated since the country was founded. Words that are part of our July 4th tradition. When in the course of human events... It becomes since 1988, NPR staff members have read aloud the document that proclaimed the start of the United States. We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America. The voices have ranged from the late Cokie Roberts to one of our newest program hosts, Saisha Roscoe, who read one of the many complaints against Britain's King George. He has combined with others to subject us to a jurisdiction foreign to our Constitution and unacknowledged by our laws. But that founding document has never been the whole story. So on this July 4th, we hear some of the ways Americans have used the Declaration since 1776. One sentence above all remains relevant. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson and other founders wrote those words, and the country has spent 247 years debating what they mean, especially the line that all men are created equal, words the founders were not exactly living by. Historian Annette Gordon-Reed wrote a book about the children Jefferson fathered with Sally Hemings, one of the people enslaved on his Virginia farm. What made Jefferson want there to be equality in the document at all? It is a document that is announcing to the world that this country is going to take its place among the powers of the earth, and they want to do so on the basis of equality. The founders asserted they were equals among nations and had a right to make their own decisions. Historian Jill Lepore says Jefferson was also repeating an idea from Enlightenment philosophers. Everyone was entitled to equal dignity. So I think, you know, it's fashionable, and I think rightly so, to indict the limits of that vision. But it is actually a radical vision in the 18th century. The notion even that all white men are equal is a radical idea. You know, I teach at Harvard College, and before the revolution, you entered a classroom or you entered commons to have your meal in the order of the social rank and wealth of your father. <laughs> Those men all lived in a highly ranked culture, 
And to the, the Declaration of Equality is throwing that away or challenging that in a really, truly revolutionary manner. And after the revolution, Americans moved toward greater equality. Most states expanded voting rights. Some abolished slavery. A few allowed black men to vote. Jefferson's Virginia did not. And Annette Gordon-Reed says Jefferson understood the contradiction. He believed that slavery was wrong. As a young man, he had come to that conclusion. He had a plan for emancipation, but a plan for emancipation that would require black people to essentially have their own country (laughs) where they would be free and would meet the United States as equals from their own country because he didn't think blacks would forgive whites for what they had done and whites would never give up their prejudices. So we would constantly be in a state of conflict. And, you know, we don't like to hear that, but we kind of have been in a state of conflict. When did people who were not included in the promise of equality begin making use of the Declaration of Independence to argue for equality? Right away. Right away. People filed freedom suits on the basis of that. I mean, they immediately saw those words as important. By 1791, people were quoting Jefferson's words back to him. Benjamin Banneker, the black naturalist and writer, sent a letter to the white founding father. This, sir, was a time in which you clearly saw into the injustice of a state of slavery, and that you publicly held forth this true and invaluable doctrine. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. But, sir, how pitiable is it to reflect that although you were so fully convinced of the benevolence of the Father of mankind, that you should at the same time counteract his mercies, in detaining by fraud and violence so numerous a part of my brethren, under groaning captivity and cruel oppression. Jefferson's declaration became a tool for those denied equal treatment. In 1848, a convention of women at Seneca Falls, New York, edited the declaration to make their declaration of sentiments. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. One of the men who attended that meeting was Frederick Douglass, who had escaped from slavery. As an activist, he denounced the Constitution under which he'd been enslaved. But by the 1850s, Jill Lepore says, he changed his strategy. Douglass comes to realize the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, we're not going to win this battle by denouncing them. We'll actually just have to say the country's principles are on our side and then demonstrate that and then push those principles to be realized. Douglas did that in an 1852 speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July. I have said that the Declaration of Independence is the ring bolt to the chain of your nation's destiny. So indeed, I regard it. The principles contained in that instrument are saving principles. Stand by those principles. Be true to them on all occasions, in all places, against all foes, and at whatever cost. Supporters of slavery felt threatened by the Declaration. In the notorious Dred Scott case of 1857, the Supreme Court took it on. The Chief Justice claimed the original meaning of all men are created equal did not include black men. One year later, Senator Stephen Douglas said the same. This doctrine of Lincoln's, declaring that men are made equal by the Declaration of Independence and by divine providence, is a monstrous heresy. Okay, that's a Walt Disney World dramatization of the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858. But Senator Douglas really said that. His opponent, Abraham Lincoln, really said this. If that declaration is not the truth, let us get the statute book in which we find it and tear it out. 
Let us stick to it then. Let us stand firmly by it. Three years later, Southern states tried to leave the Union to preserve slavery. The Confederate Vice President Alexander H. Stevens delivered what's called the Cornerstone Speech. He said Jefferson was wrong to promote equality. Our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite idea. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. Stevens' side lost the Civil War, and the states approved three changes to the Constitution. The 14th Amendment echoed Jefferson's language. Nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Equality was finally written into the Constitution, and then the Supreme Court took it out. A series of rulings limited federal power to defend civil rights. Yet new groups of people pressed new claims of equality. By the 1870s, the populist farmers, the Grange Movement, writes a new Declaration of Independence asserting freedom and independence from the tyranny of monopolies, of corporate monopolies. And in the 20th century, Americans continued to insist on the proposition from 1776. At the time of independence, the U.S. did not include native nations, which were legally separate. Listeners to past readings of the Declaration on this program know the document mentions them only in a single racist phrase. But by 1961, native people were U.S. citizens, and some made Jefferson's language their own in the Declaration of Indian Purpose. We believe in the future of a greater America, an America which we were the first to love, where life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness will be a reality. In such a future, with Indians and all other Americans cooperating. Two years later, Americans gathered at the Lincoln Memorial for the March on Washington. In a sense, we've come to our nation's capital to cash a check. When the architects of our republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence, they were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. Martin Luther King said those words five years before his assassination. The San Francisco political leader Harvey Milk invoked them before he was killed in 1978. No matter how hard you try, you can never erase those words from the Declaration of Independence. He's played there in a movie by Sean Penn. Jill Lepore says it's natural that so many people call on Jefferson's words. That's where the actual idea comes from. That is the real crucible of the idea of equality, is from people who are being denied it and who are pressing those claims. Annette Gordon-Reed says the founders saw equality as a process. Jefferson had this idea as well of the next generation carrying a ball forward. And we're sort of impatient with him about that because we want him, <laughs> we wanted him to do more at that point. It would be nice if he had freed his own slaves. It'd be yes, nice, you know, saying. but the thing is, look, okay, we created a country. <laughs> we left the largest, the most powerful nation on earth and created a country. Now there are things for you to do. Many of today's debates turn on equality. 
What's it mean to have an equal shot at education? A Supreme Court case over using race in university admissions included arguments for equality on both sides. Other cases asked, what's it mean to have an equal chance to vote? Or how far can you push a demand for equal treatment by a business? And that's just in the last few days. Annette Gordon-Reed says Jefferson's declaration remains a guidepost. It's like a great poem. It has a meaning that transcends whatever the person may have been thinking because it is a truth and people accept it as a truth. And some people fear that and other people embrace it. But I think far more people in the country have embraced it and that that accounts for the progress that we have had up until this moment. I mean, it's never linear. It's never clear that we're always going to be going forward. But the tendency has been in that direction. And I think the Declaration has helped that along much more so than the Constitution. When the Constitution was drafted, Ben Franklin said it created a republic, if you can keep it. The Declaration states a purpose for that republic, which falls to later generations to keep alive. This is NPR News. This is WBUR. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Thanks for starting your Tuesday with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the latest on Ukraine's long-awaited counteroffensive against Russian forces is now nearly a month old and moving slowly. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. And Boston Children's Hospital thanking the community for once again helping make them one of the best children's hospitals in the nation. Boston Children's, where the world comes for answers. Bruno Lozano is a Democrat, former mayor of Del Rio, Texas, and a critic of President Biden's federal immigration policy. I am asking to please stop. Please make another plan for this federal issue. If you're going to allow these individuals into our community, I respectfully ask that you provide the means and the supplies necessary to accommodate them I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Bruno Lozano joins us on point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Climate change is on a lot of people's minds. If that includes you and you want to know what you can do, try our free newsletter, Cooked. It has advice on how to reduce your impact on the environment by changing what you eat. Sign up today at wbur.org slash newsletters. There's a good chance of showers and thunderstorms all day today. Otherwise, it'll be cloudy with a high near 76. Tonight, just a slight chance of rain, so fireworks will probably still happen in many places in the 60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and a high near 85. Right now, it's 70 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Capital One, offering their premium travel card, Venture X. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. Details at CapitalOne.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From EBSCO, weaving libraries into the web with linked data technology. Designed to help make library resources more discoverable for library users, anytime, anywhere. Learn more at ebsco.com. And from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation at rwjf.org. 
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. The U.S. Supreme Court's decision to strike down affirmative action is expected to lead to declines in racial diversity at colleges and universities. That's been the case in places like California and Florida, where race-conscious admissions were banned years ago. So what can colleges do to maintain and even increase diversity in the student body? Joining me now is Natasha Wariku. She is a professor of sociology at Tufts University and author of Is Affirmative Action Fair? The Myth of Equity in College Admissions. Good morning. Good morning. So let me start right there with the title of your book. You call equity in college admissions a myth. You pose the question how fair affirmative action is in the first place. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. Well, you know, and I, I talk in the book about how, you know, ultimately asking whether affirmative action is fair is asking the wrong question because so that centers the, the issue of, you know, is this fair, the sort of not the follow on to that, is it fair often to white students or Asian Americans? Um, and in reality, you know, affirmative action is a policy that really is about furthering the goals of higher education. And we should really be thinking about admissions not as, you know, a reward for achievement. And, you know, some people deserve to be admitted and some people don't. No one deserves this. But rather, colleges are trying to admit a student body that furthers their mission. And most colleges' missions are about contributing to our shared society. So looking towards the future rather than the past, not what did you do, but what will you do in the future? And I conclude in the book that, you know, it's clear that racial diversity in um, elite in elite colleges so that these people can go on to become the leader, our future leaders, um, diversify our professions is really something that will benefit our entire American society for the better. Now, while last week's Supreme Court decision applies to all public and private universities and colleges in the country, only a small portion have highly selective admissions where fewer than 50 percent of applicants get in. Those will therefore be the most impacted. What response do you expect from those schools? Yeah, I mean, I, it's pretty clear that most, uh, co- you know, college leaders, admissions officers, heads of admissions really care about racial diversity for their student body because they see the benefits of diversity on their campus in terms of students' experiences on campus, in terms of what they go off and do um, in the future, again, connecting to the university goals. Um, so they're committed and they will try a lot of different things. They already are. And, you know, hopefully they will be doubling down on these efforts, you know, things like recruitment in, um, you know, underrepresented communities um, that are perhaps close to the university or, or further afield, things like pathways programs where they kind of build partnerships with, again, schools or um, communities, um, give students extra prom- students who seem like they might, with a little support, be successful at the university, give them some more support so that they can then get exposed to the campus and then hopefully matriculate in the future. And then other things like in terms of admissions, like percent plans, if you're, say, in the top 4%, 5% of your graduating class, you can, you know, these are these are things that have that have been used in the U- University of California system, University of Texas system. You, you get to automatically be admitted to one of the um, top colleges, you know, really doubling down on holistic admissions, taking much more consideration into your background. So these are all, there's a whole range of things that colleges can, and I think will do, are already doing and will double down on. When we're talking about these elite institutions, you know, for example, Harvard, you know, yesterday a civil rights group filed a complaint to stop legacy admissions there, which they say overwhelmingly benefits white and wealthy students. How difficult will it be to change those practices? Yeah, I mean, I think that colleges 
can and should end legacy admissions. That doesn't, it seems pretty clear in terms of, you know, what they are getting from those legacy admissions policies and the sort of stain on their, um, you know, this idea of fairness or even just equity that it creates, uh, to me, isn't worth it, pretty clear. Um, but I think this idea that ending legacy admissions is going to compensate for affirmative action is wrong. Um, and we look at the data, it won't, ending that policy won't bring the numbers of underrepresented minorities back to where it was in the past. But absolutely they should. And I think they are going to think about it. I think they worry about the financial implications. That's Natasha Wariku, professor of sociology at Tufts University. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Here's a sound I've been hearing for days. It's the season of fireworks, or has been, but are fireworks fading? There's been a fresh push in recent years to use safer, cheaper, and greener drones for light shows. It's definitely a great alternative if you're worried about localized pollution that's happening when the fireworks go off and leave debris that might leave some heavy metals in the area. That's Rick Boss, the president of Sky Elements Drone Shows. Joseph Pappas, a communications and technology director at Superior Fireworks in Orange Park, Florida, also points to safety concerns. You're still handling a consumer-grade explosive device, and you need to handle that with respect and care and make sure you're following all of the directions for how to use the product safely that are on all the warning labels. The Consumer Product Safety Commission reported 11 deaths and more than 10,000 fireworks-related injuries last year in the U.S. But Bob Weaver of Nevada's Goldfield Fireworks says pollution is mostly localized, while most accidents are due to human error or natural events, such as lightning. It always becomes controversial and in the news right around this time of year. And then on July 5th, the whole issue goes away for another year. Pappas says that while drones are taking to the skies more often at big events, fireworks are still king. The complexity of a drone show really isn't something you can create at the consumer backyard level for most people. Drone shows are still a new phenomenon, and it's unlikely they will overtake fireworks anytime soon. In fact, oftentimes, drones and fireworks go well together. And with a price tag for a drone show starting at $15,000, we can expect many people to continue to rely on the rocket's red glare. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on Morning Edition. Tonight, Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart will lead the concert on the Esplanade for the 28th year. He'll reflect on the event's significance. It's 829. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go. It lets you pause and even rewind if you miss something. Find the WBUR app in your app store today. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Gentle Giant Moving and Storage, employing athletes since 1980, now hiring. Gentle Giant is an equal opportunity employer. GentleGiant.com slash careers.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Pennsylvania say last night's shooting in Philadelphia left five people dead and two children wounded. A gunman wearing a bulletproof vest opened fire over several blocks before being apprehended. In Maryland, police are still looking for suspects following a weekend shooting in Baltimore that left two people dead and 28 wounded. That gunfire erupted early Sunday at a block party. Brandon Scott is the city's mayor. They were grown adults filming young people with guns who said nothing, who did nothing, who didn't say to the police, hey, I know this teenager's out here at this event with a gun, and we have to have a sense of responsibility to our own community as well. In Texas, police say gunfire left three people dead and eight others wounded last night in Fort Worth. Russia is calling today's drone attacks on Moscow an act of terrorism. No injuries were reported. NPR's Greg Myrie has more. Russia says the Vinukova airport, just to the south of Moscow, came under an attempted drone attack early this morning. The defense ministry says that near the airport and surrounding areas, four drones were shot down, a fifth was intercepted and fell harmlessly. Uh, Incoming flights were temporarily diverted, but operations are back to normal. This is NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. By this time tomorrow, the Sumner Tunnel will be closed for a reconstruction project. Drivers will have to find a new way to get from East Boston to downtown. State Highway Administrator Jonathan Gulliver says commuters will feel the impact regardless of what direction they're coming from. The folks traveling from the North Shore and East Boston will be the hardest impacted without a doubt. However, this is something that if you're coming from the West or if you're coming from the South, you will also see additional congestion as a result of taking the Sumner Tunnel out of service for this entire period. The tunnel will be closed until the end of August. To give people an alternate route, the T is making the blue line fare-free while the tunnel is closed. Fares will be reduced on MBTA ferries and on the Newburyport-Rockport commuter rail line. Three state reps are criticizing the T's plans to shut down a brand new part of the Green Line this summer. The line will be closed between Leechmere and Union Station for six weeks, beginning July 18th. The T says it has to make repairs to a bridge. Riders are being told to use buses to get around the closure. The group is telling the T and the state it must provide better alternatives, including dedicated shuttle buses for Green Line riders. There are 253 new Americans celebrating Independence Day today. The group was sworn in as citizens yesterday at Faneuil Hall in Boston. WBUR Steve Brown was there. They came from 59 different countries, including Russia, Somalia, and Portugal, just to name a few. Some have been in the United States for decades. Others are relative new arrivals. Each one of them deciding to become a citizen for their own reasons, including Arman Avesta, who was originally from Iran. I became an American because it's day and life difference between when you don't have freedom of speech and when you do. And you have to actually hold that very close to your heart because I didn't have that and now I do. Federal Bankruptcy Court Judge Janet Bostwick welcomed the new citizens, telling them that we celebrate their joining our nation, which is one of immigrants. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. It's 833. 
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by A Street Frames, 42 years making frames for galleries, artists, and the public. Museum-quality framing and advice in Cambridge and Boston, astreetframes.com. The Red Sox begin a week-long homestand this afternoon at Fenway. They'll host the Texas Rangers. Boston's James Paxton was named the American League Pitcher of the Month for June. He threw 31 innings last month, striking out 34 batters and giving up just 18 hits. He's the first Boston pitcher to win the award since 2018. Rain and thunderstorms likely throughout the day today in parts of Central Mass and the Merrimack Valley are under a flood watch. It'll be in the upper 70s. It should dry up in many areas tonight in time for the fireworks. It'll be in the 60s tomorrow, mid-80s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business. Designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Rob Schmitz. Russia's invasion of Ukraine keeps coming home to Russia. When the invasion started last year, it seemed that Russian territory was secure. It was protected by nuclear weapons, and Ukraine had no obvious way to strike back. But in recent months, armed groups have conducted operations on Russian soil. Russia's own mercenaries briefly raced toward Moscow. Drones attacked the Kremlin. And this morning, Russia says drones tried to attack a Moscow airport. For the latest NPR's, Greg Myrie joins us from the capital, Kyiv. Welcome, Greg. Hi, Rob. What do we know about what happened today? So Russia says the Vinukova airport, just to the south of Moscow, came under an attempted drone attack early this morning. The defense ministry says that near the airport and surrounding areas, Four drones were shot down, a fifth was intercepted and fell harmlessly. Uh, Incoming flights were temporarily diverted, but operations are back to normal. This is one of three big civilian airports that serve Moscow. Russia is blaming Ukraine, calling it an act of terrorism. Ukraine isn't commenting. However, Ukrainian officials have spoken about how they're extending the range of their drones to reach Moscow, which is about 300 miles from Ukraine's border. So sticking with Russia here, are there signs of potential fallout from this recent internal rebellion by a mercenary leader there? Well, CIA Director William Burns certainly thinks so. He gave a rare public speech in Britain over the weekend and said Russians are increasingly disenchanted with the war and he believes the CIA can capitalize on this. Let's have a listen. That disaffection creates a once in a generation opportunity for us at CIA, at our core, a human intelligence service. We're not letting it go to waste. So this is not something you hear often from a spy chief. He's openly saying that he thinks the Russians, in in some Russians in key positions, may be ready and willing to turn on the Russian government and and work for the U.S. as spies. In fact, the, the CIA has put out a video on the Telegram app telling Russians how they can contact the CIA securely. It's, it's also the latest example of the U.S. intelligence community openly talking about what it's thinking and doing when it comes to Russia. Burns called it a, quote, 
novel and effective strategy that has limited uh, Russia's ability to create false narratives. That's fascinating. Let's turn to Ukraine's offensive. What's the latest on that front? Yeah, a top Ukrainian official said this morning that the past few days of the offensive have been, quote, particularly fruitful. This comes in a tweet from the head of the National Security and Defense Council, Alexei Danilov, and it's really the most upbeat assessment by a Ukrainian official we've heard in a while. Now, he didn't announce the capture of any additional territory. But he said Ukraine was achieving, quote, the maximum destruction of manpower, equipment, fuel depots, military vehicles and command posts. We can't independently verify it, not hearing it from other Ukrainian officials, but it would be in keeping with Ukraine's effort to weaken Russian forces before making a big push with the bulk of its forces. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Kiev. Greg, thank you. Sure thing, Rob. Today, the community of Highland Park, Illinois, will gather to honor the people who were killed and injured a year ago during a mass shooting. That's when a gunman climbed onto a rooftop and opened fire on a July 4th parade in that Chicago suburb. Alex Degman of member station WBEZ joins us. Hello, Alex. Hi, Rob. So Highland Park has held a July 4th parade for years, but last year residents saw something they never thought they would see. Remind us what occurred. Right. The parade had just begun when there were gunshots. A man with an assault weapon fired more than 80 rounds into the crowd, and it was chaos. Elected officials, first responders, and their families, uh, they were all there at this parade, and they were scrambling to make sure that their families were safe first, and then immediately they had to shift their attention to the parade goers and the people marching in the parade. Mayor Nancy Rotering, who was at the parade, says she's talked to a lot of adults since then who never thought a shooting would occur in their town, but children had a totally different response. Every single one of them said, we expected this to happen in Highland Park. The adults were like, how could this ever happen in Highland Park? But the kids said, we expected this to happen and we expected it to happen in school. And instead it happened on a parade route. When the shooting stopped, seven people had been killed, 48 people were injured. A hunt for the gunman lasted several hours and ended with police taking him into custody after a car chase. Oftentimes, children know far more than adults in these situations. Highland Park said there would be no parade this year. What is happening today? Well, it's actually a day full of events, but officials plan the day today knowing that people are still healing. They're starting by commemorating the seven people who lost their lives and the many more who were injured. And there's also going to be what they're calling a community walk. It's going to be a walk along the parade route that was marred last year. There won't be floats or politicians or bands. There's also a community picnic. There's some live music at the high school. And instead of fireworks, there's going to be a 10 to 15 minute drone show called We Are Highland Park. How are people feeling about security? Well, the people I've talked to are feeling pretty good. There are restrictions set up at some events. Some metal detectors are going to be at entrances to things like the remembrance ceremony and the community walk. And they've asked people not to line up as spectators for the walk. Hmm. And there's also going to be more police. They'll be using helicopters. There's going to be drones. And you'll probably see more of them perched on rooftops. And there are going to be officers from other nearby towns. And it's interesting to note Highland Park already had an assault weapons ban in place last year. But the Illinois state legislature, after the shooting, enacted a statewide ban. And another piece of the legislation that they passed will allow for local police to use drones to patrol large events like this parade and festivals. So what is the latest with the alleged shooter? And I understand it's not just him facing charges here. 
Yeah, the accused gunman is Robert Cremo III. He was 21 at the time. He faces 117 charges, and that includes 21 for first-degree murder. He's got a hearing in September, and we could see a trial date set then. His father, Robert Cremo Jr., faces seven counts of reckless conduct, and that's over the sponsorship of his son's firearm owner's ID card. Now, that's needed to own a gun here, but anybody under 21 has to have a sponsor to get a card, and the suspect was 19 when he got his. And a lot of people are angry because police were called to the Cremo house multiple times. Uh, in one instance, a family member said that Cremo was threatening to kill everyone there. And authorities confiscated knives, but said that there wasn't any sign of any guns there. And the Lake County State's attorney is alleging that the elder Cremo knew that his son might be troubled, but signed off on the Floyd card anyway. Now, I should mention that those court dates are a ways off, but today is about remembering the victims of the shooting and just bringing the community back together. That's WBEZ's Alex Degman. Thank you, Alex. You're welcome. Coming up this afternoon on All Things Considered, a new play in New York shows just how messy the early days of the federal government were. Listen wherever you are, on your phone, your computer, your smart speaker, or on the radio. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the Marketplace Morning Report will look at how more damaging storms caused by climate change are affecting the home insurance market nationwide. It's going to be a humid and soggy 4th of July, but WBUR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says it should dry out for the fireworks tonight. Well, just like the past couple of days, showers, downpours, thunder today will swing through, but it won't be raining the entire day for everyone by any means. So don't cancel your plans, but be ready to duck inside for a bit should you need to. Humid highs 75 to 80. Rounds of scattered showers and thunderstorms from late this morning will linger into the early evening, winding down 6 to 8 p.m. An isolated severe storm is possible, though, so damaging wind gusts, localized flooding are my primary concerns. By fireworks time, we'll be drying out. Temperature around or just over 70. Tomorrow, bright, warm in the 80s, staying in the mid to upper 80s with just a pop-up storm or two through the end of the week. It's 70 degrees in Boston. Gas prices in Massachusetts are holding steady this holiday week. A gallon of regular is going for $3.55. Mary McGuire is with AAA Northeast. She says prices in the state are significantly cheaper compared to this time last year. We found that last year, many people stayed home because gasoline prices hit a record high of more than $5 a gallon in mid-June. So that definitely kept many people home last year. McGuire estimates more than one million drivers in Massachusetts will hit the road for the holiday. It's 844. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity, because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Hopefully the weather will hold out tonight for the annual Boston Pops 4th of July concert on the Esplanade. For a preview, we're joined now by Pops conductor Keith Lockhart. Good morning and happy 4th. Good morning, Rupa, and happy 4th to you. 
So you've been leading the Pops since 1995. How do you still get excited for this concert every year? Well, yes, you know, it's amazing. This is my 28th uh, 4th of July event with the Boston Pops on the Esplanade. And it does uh, it does stay exciting every year. And I think it's the event itself that uh, makes it exciting. One, the anticipation of performing for hundreds of thousands of people live, not to mention the people we broadcast to. And it all has to be done, you know, one time and right. It's always exciting. And then you, when you think you've kind of got it under control, then you have weather to think about. <laughs> Is there a favorite part or a favorite moment that you look forward to every year? Well, it's kind of like deciding between your kids. I, uh, I'm i very proud of the program we've put together this year. Every year we try to balance the program for the incredibly diverse audience that watches along with this show and make sure that everybody thinks there's something we put in there just for them. So the guest artists and Vogue, Lokash, uh, the great Broadway performer Mandy Gonzalez, the U.S. Army Soldiers Chorus and Army Field Band are really wonderful and a great patriotic addition. I love the whole program, but I have to say every year what I look forward to most is doing Stars and Stripes Forever at the end because that makes me know that we got to the end of another one. <laughs> Last year, there were questions about whether you'd be playing the Russian piece, the 1812 Overture, because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. You played it. And did you get any negative feedback about that? And what are you thinking about tonight? Do you think you'll play it tonight? Well, believe it or not, this is not a new controversy. And even before Russia's tragic invasion of, of Ukraine, people said, well, why are you doing this piece by a Russian about a Russian victory over the French on an American program? I think the celebratory nature of the piece has really transcended its origins. You know, if you want to get historical about it, Tchaikovsky's familial roots were Ukrainian, actually. And the piece was written to celebrate the successful repulsion by the Russians of an unwarranted French invasion. So actually, it was written to celebrate the kind of thing that we are supporting with Ukraine right now, their stand, their right to self-determination. I think at the end of the day, the piece has become about our Fourth of July concert and where it came from matters less. You mentioned that this is your 28th year. Do you mind if I ask how much longer do you think you'll be leading the Pops on the 4th? I don't mind if you ask. I wish I had a better answer for that. <laughs> it still feels good. You know, I never dreamed in 1995 as a 35-year-old that I would be having this conversation now 28 years later. I still get great joy out of this work. So as long as it feels exciting and feels like I have something to offer and other people feel the same, I suppose I will be here. I will tell you, though, like Arthur Fiedler passed away in his 50th year on the podium, and I definitely won't be here that long. <laughs> what is the pops every year with this concert? What does it add to 4th of July in Boston? I think it adds a, a kind of a, a point of connection. So many people, not just here, but around the country, really think of Boston as the center of our celebration of our nation's birthday. And the concert is the culmination for so many people of that celebration. For me, the concert means the chance to bring people together. And at a time when we seem to be so fractured, um, getting to come together from a lot of different directions and celebrate commonalities and celebrate the aspirations we have for America, even if sometimes it falls short of those aspirations, I think uh, is a really worthy goal. Boston Pops conductor Keith Lockhart, thank you so much for being here on what must be a really busy day for you. Thank you.
You're with WBOR. Coming up at the top of the hour, it's the BBC News Hour. They'll have the latest on Israel's military operation in the West Bank that's killed at least 10 Palestinians and why the new Barbie movie is causing a major controversy in Vietnam. It's 8.50. As Kabul fell to the Taliban in 2021, a teenager was separated from his family at the airport and wound up on a plane without them. It's a dark day for me because I lost my all family. He's been here in the U.S. ever since, alone. Plus, descendants of Frederick Douglass read from one of his speeches, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July? On All Things Considered, from NPR News. Listen today, starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Tuesday morning. Police in Philadelphia are looking for a motive after a gunman opened fire on city streets last night, killing at least four people. Russian officials say they blocked a series of drone attacks outside Moscow amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. Service on the Orange Line of the T is suspended between North Station and Back Bay right now because of flooding. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, valuing their commitment to being diverse and inclusive. OceanStateJobLot.com. Take an umbrella as you head out today because there's a good chance of rain and storms all day. Then we'll have temperatures in the upper 70s. Tonight it dips into the 60s and should be dry enough in many areas for the fireworks. Tomorrow, mid-80s and mostly sunny. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. To raise prices or not to raise prices? Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com slash business. From Marketplace, I'm Novasafo, in for David Brancaccio. The latest measures of inflation show a slowdown, but prices are still rising at twice the rate the Federal Reserve wants to see. The Consumer Price Index rose 4% in May compared to last year. We'll get June numbers later this month. So how do businesses decide whether to raise prices or swallow higher costs? Marketplace's Justin Ho checked in with some business owners to find out. Every year since the pandemic started, Marcia St. Hilaire Finn has raised prices at Bright Start Early Care and Preschool in Washington, D.C. by about 3 to 5%. She says she makes that decision starting with a pretty simple formula. We looked at the cost of providing the service, and then we add on our profit margin onto that. Those costs have been rising. Diapers, formula, cleaning supplies, and salaries. But St. Hilaire Finn says there are limits to how much of those increases she can pass on to her customers. At the end of the day, we're like, well, families can bear so much, but if we have to provide the service, everyone has to make the sacrifice. That means St. Hilaire Finn has been cutting her profit margin. Before the pandemic, she says it hovered around 8 to 10 percent of her revenue. Now, that number is closer to 3 percent. I'd rather get 2 percent, 1 percent, 3 percent than have a price where nobody, you can provide a service to anybody and then you lose your whole business. There are other limits to how much a business can raise prices. Greg Warwick is CEO of the equipment supplier TMB Baking near San Francisco. He says his prices have gone up roughly 10 to 15 percent over the last couple of years. And Warwick says he's been keeping an eye on how much other equipment companies are charging. You know, we are not the only uh, supplier of baking equipment in the United States. We do sell throughout North America. 
Warwick says in his industry, missing out on even one sale could be pretty devastating. A spiral mixer might cost fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. A deck oven might cost a hundred grand. In the durable goods sector, in particular, with some high-cost equipment, a sale can be really a positive thing or a negative if you don't gain it. But not every business is as concerned about what every customer thinks. Steve Chu runs Ekiben, a sandwich shop in Baltimore. He says his costs have gone up around thirty percent, so he's raised his prices around thirty percent. And when we raised prices, there were, you know, obviously you're gonna have people that are unhappy and stuff. But you know, we raised prices according to our raised costs, and over time, they will understand. Chu says it helps that by now a lot of customers are used to paying more at restaurants, but he also has to make sure they're still happy with his sandwiches. Because at a certain point, you'll keep on raising prices, and you'll hit like a certain price point where people are like, "I do expect a lot more out of this brand." And if that happens, Chu says he might have to turn his sandwich shop into something fancier. I'm Justin Ho for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed with people in mind to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. We've been following changes in the homeowners insurance market in several states. Major insurance companies are pulling out of places like California and Florida because of increasingly frequent, destructive, and costly natural disasters—the kinds of challenges associated with climate change. And with the big insurance companies leaving town, the remaining coverage options are getting more expensive. Marketplace's senior economics contributor Chris Farrell has been looking into how insurance companies calculate what to charge based on climate change risk. He spoke with David Brancaccio. First of all, it's typically the largest asset on the balance sheet of any household, primary residence, and often the mortgage company makes you have insurance on what they're helping to pay for. How big is the homeowners insurance market? Homeowners insurance is a fifteen trillion dollar market by coverage, and almost eighty five percent of homeowners they pay premiums. And these policies they provide households with financial protection from climate related losses. You know, think of it this way: the insurance industry is acting like the front line defense against climate change in how it prices risks and pools coverage. Homeowners insurance premiums are tending to go higher, especially in parts of the country. That are more vulnerable to natural disasters. Yeah, from the perspective of homeowners, a number of insurance companies have decided not to write new property insurance policies in California, including State Farm. And you have a somewhat similar story that's unfolding in Florida. Premiums are up sharply in Texas. Homeowners in some vulnerable states, you know, they turn to state chartered or state backed insurance for coverage. But boy, these backstops, David, you know, they're financially vulnerable too. Insurance is regulated at the state level. That's one of its features or bugs. How are regulators and legislators responding? In the aggregate, not fast enough. You know, there's a fascinating study by three economists. It was published last year by the Federal Reserve, and they found strong evidence that state regulators have largely decoupled rates 
from the underlying risks. So in states that are at risk to hurricanes, wildfires, rates haven't been adequately adjusted to the growth in losses. And it's understandable. You want to protect homeowners from these higher premiums, but allowing insurance companies to price the risk of climate-related change into their policies, look, it is absolutely critical to mitigating the impact of climate change. Right. But higher prices mean fewer families, fewer homeowners would be able to afford homeowners insurance. There's that paradox. There is. And that's why there's going to be a lot of reform in this market. But any reform movement, it kind of needs that foundation of accurate risk-adjusted premium prices. You know, with better risk pricing, you know, it creates incentives for individuals, regulators, legislatures to take climate change seriously. The bottom line is when rates don't adequately reflect risks, the informational role of insurance prices breaks down and we're less prepared to protect the economy from the impact of climate change. Marketplace's senior economics contributor, Chris Farrell, thank you very much. Thanks a lot. And David Brancaccio with that interview. I'm Nova Safo with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. Cloudy and upper 70s today. There's a good chance of showers and storms. Upper 60s and mostly cloudy tonight. It should be dry enough for fireworks. Tomorrow, mostly sunny skies and mid-80s. Right now, it's 71 degrees in Boston. We're coming up on 9 o'clock, and the BBC is next. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.